Well, as Pastor Matt said, I have the opportunity today to uh, bring God's Word and to continue on in this series that we started a few weeks ago that we have entitled the I Am Series. And to get you ready for what we're going to discuss today, you might open your Bibles to John chapter 14 uh, so that we can zoom in and focus in on the I Am statement that we will talk about today in John 14, 6, which is I Am the Way, the Truth, and the Life. Over these last couple of weeks, Pastor Matt has talked about how Jesus made the statement, I am the light of the world, and he also made the statement that I am the door. And we know that Jesus used words that were descriptive to define what he was trying to communicate to the people of his day, and in most cases, he tried to use these words to define uh, who he was to his followers. So I suppose we can gain a lot of things from the things that he said about who he is. So today we're going to look at I am the way, the truth, and the life that is found in John 14, 6. But before we do so, I'd like to ask you a quick question about a story that you may have heard before. Do you remember the story about the famous blind man and the elephant? There were like three to six blind men who were trying to put their hands on an elephant, and one blind man touches the belly of the elephant, and he says, I, I, think, I think this is a wall. I think what I'm touching is a wall. And then another blind man grabs the elephant's ear, and he just tries to feel it with his hands and takes the other hand and tries to kind of massage it. He says, I think I'm touching a fan. So the first man says, I think I'm touching a wall. The second man says, I think I'm touching a fan. There's a third blind man who touches the elephant by its tail. And he says, I think I'm touching a rope. And he's like, well, I think it's a rope. The first guy thinks it's a wall. The second guy thinks it's a fan. And the truth is they all were wrong because they couldn't see clearly what it was they were trying to make sense of. So in John chapter 14, what we're going to be doing today is unpacking some things that Jesus is trying to make sense of for his disciples because they are spiritually blind to what he is trying to teach them. Now, as you likely know, this is at the end of the life of Jesus. This is at the end of his ministry and he is about to go to the cross. And so the first major touch point that he tries to convey to his disciples is this. Jesus describes what it means to believe in God. And you're going to see a verse behind me here in John 14, 1. It says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Now, this statement is made by Jesus because they are at this moment, as I said just a moment ago, becoming very emotional and very undone about what he had just told them in chapter 13. Now, you might remember at the Last Supper that happens in chapter 13, Jesus just told Judas that he was going to betray him. And then later on in John chapter 13, Jesus tells Peter that he's going to deny him. And they are very, very undone about this situation. And so Jesus emphasizes something very important to them and says, believe in God, but believe also in me. Now, what's interesting is that if you study this, this passage of Scripture, you might have a different Bible version in front of you, 
and the different versions say different things. The NIV version, uh, you'll see it up here on the screen, says something like this. It says, trust God, trust also in me. There's another version that says, do you believe in God? Believe also in me. And then there's another version that says, you believe in God, do you believe also in me? Now, regardless of what version you might have or translation you might have, Jesus is kind of focusing in on one reality about himself to his disciples, and he simply wants them to believe in him. Because as I mentioned in a few hours, it's going to become very, very unpopular for them to believe in him. He will become a very unpopular person, and therefore, it will be very unpopular to believe in him. He will be falsely accused, falsely rejected, mocked, and crucified. And this is why he says, believe in God, but also believe in me. And so according to Jesus, this is what it means to believe in God. Now, this is interesting because I think that we probably most likely experience something like this in our culture. Uh, Believing in Jesus today can present very similar challenges to that of what the disciples were facing in their day and age. The person and work of Jesus is often mocked by the media uh, and the mainstream culture and all of the talking heads that we might see in the media. And so it's therefore a lot easier to not believe in Jesus. It's a lot easier to say, I believe in God, I'm a person of faith, and not mention anything about Jesus. Now, in the United States, we know that there are about 70% of the population who would actually call themselves evangelical Christians, which implies a belief in both God and Jesus. And that's the assumption. If a person calls themselves a a Christian, the, the assumption is that they believe in God and that they also believe in Jesus. However, experts who do studies on this kind of stuff and who try to tease out what people really believe, they have found that about 45 to 65 percent of so-called evangelical Christians believe that Jesus is not necessary for belief in God. So, in other words, you can believe in God, but it's not necessary to believe in Jesus, according to many in our culture who call themselves Christians. So that leaves about 5 to 25% of those who call themselves evangelical Christians who actually hold on to this fundamental touch point that Jesus tries to convey to his disciples that belief in him is what it means to believe in God. So I think this is why he emphasizes it, and I think this is why he says what he does in John chapter 6, verse 29, which should be up here for you on the screen that Pastor Matt just mentioned a moment ago. He said, this is the work of God to believe in the one that he has sent. So this is touch point number one. Believing in Jesus is what will enable people to see God for who he really is and thus understand God's plan for humanity in a much better way, which leads to our next major touch point, which is this. In John chapter 14, Jesus describes also the plan of God. Look at verse 2. It says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, 
What have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So after Jesus establishes what it means to believe in God, he outlines about what it means to trust the plan of God. The important point here, though, is that there will be no way any man can get to this place on his own unless Jesus goes to prepare a place for his followers. And this is the main point of emphasis. Jesus has to go and prepare, and the going and preparing includes one fundamental touch point that defines his reason for coming into the world. And the touch point is this, that he will go to the cross to die for our sins. And the fancy term that we often use here in the church world is that Jesus will become our atoning sacrifice. And uh, I thought it necessary to kind of unpack what atoning sacrifice means. This is a very common theological term, but uh, just for our purposes, atoning sacrifice means that he receives the punishment for our sins so that we can go and be in this place that he speaks of here in verses 2 and 3. He will become the just punishment so that we are no longer condemned for our own wrongdoing. And I really believe that we have an inbuilt sort of innate quality that teaches us about just punishment. You know, just punishment is necessary to cover the wrongs that are committed against us when others inflict hurt and pain, when they violate us or when they violate God. We, we long for justice to happen. I see this happen quite often with my kids, to be quite honest. Um, there was a time... <clears throat> About a year and a half ago when Buffy, who is my wife, was not at home and I was sitting for the kids. And usually, you know, when I uh, babysit for the kids, that usually means that uh, we're watching a lot of college football and uh, we're eating a lot of um, very he healthy food like Doritos and popcorn and pizza. And then sometimes, you know, I might just leave them down there playing, wrestling, trying to invent their own version of football in our living room. And uh, one day I heard some yelling and screaming and my daughter came upstairs and she said, Daddy, she's crying, she said, Daddy, I need you to know that Caleb punched me in the face. I said, oh, well, that's not good. She's like, no, it's not, and it hurt very bad. So I went to find my son, you know, and I didn't really know what to say. I'm not that gifted of a parent. I just was hoping that Buffy would get home sooner rather than later. <laughs> so I went down to him, and I looked at him, and I said, uh, Caleb, you, you need to, I really didn't know what to say. I said, you need to go, go tell your sister you're sorry. And uh, he said, well, you know, she started it. And I said, it doesn't matter. You punched her. That's wrong. You need to go tell her you're sorry. So he marched upstairs begrudgingly. He looks at her and is kind of looking down at the floor, and he says, I'm sorry. And she looks at me, and she's like, that's not good enough. <laughs> she's like, I'm sorry, just doesn't cut it. He needs to be punished. And I said, well, you know, because of the exceptional parent that I am, we'll just have to wait until your mother gets home to find out what we're going to do. 
So she walks away and shakes her head and is very, very frustrated with me as her father. But why is she frustrated? I think I can understand why she is frustrated. She is frustrated because she was violated. And she wants a just punishment for the wrongdoing that was committed unto her. So the same thing is being conveyed here by Jesus, that he is going to endure the just punishment for us in all of the wrongdoing that we have committed towards others, against ourselves, and ultimately towards God. This has been God's plan from the beginning. As you all know, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, after Adam and Eve did what they weren't supposed to, God makes a plan to redeem humanity, and this is what he says in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. And so in this moment, God shows his plan 2,000 years before it ever happens that Jesus will deliver the knockout blow to the head of his opposition and totally take him out. And the knockout blow would ultimately come when he pays the price for our sin. I think this is what he is talking about. This is the touch point that he's trying to clear up with his disciples when he says, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Not only, not only does he say that he's going to pay the price and prepare a place, but he also says, that he's going to, but he also describes what it means to know God. Look at verses 5 through 7. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. And from now on, you do know him and have seen him. So as you can see, Thomas still appears to be confused by God's plan. And as you may recall, Thomas is the one in John chapter 20 that is very skeptical. He asks questions. He wants more answers. And he's kind of showing his cards and his true nature in this conversation with Jesus. But Jesus kind of gets frustrated with Thomas because Thomas wasn't able to see Jesus for who he really was. Even though Jesus was right in front of him, his view of things had become distorted under the pressure that they were experiencing. I remember a while back reading a story about Sherlock Holmes and his kind of, uh, his buddy that he always kind of marched around with, Dr. Watson. They went on a camping trip and sometime in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes wakes up uh, because he thought things looked kind of slightly different. And he kind of pokes his friend, he wakes him up, he says, Dr. Watson, look up at the stars and tell me what you see. And Dr. Watson says, I see millions of stars, and if even a few of those stars have planets, it's quite likely there are some planets that might even be like planet Earth. And if there are a few planets like Earth out there, there might also be life. And Sherlock Holmes look at, looks at Dr. Watson, he says, Dr. Watson... You idiot, somebody stole our tent. <laughs> so I think it's uh, fair to say that Jesus wanted to look at Thomas and say, you fool, 
How can you not see the obvious? I've been with you all of this time, and you're still missing my true nature. You don't know who I am, and you need to know who I am before we turn the page and I am falsely accused and condemned. Now, I can understand this, and I'm sure you can identify with Thomas to a certain extent as well. This kind of struggle can happen to any one of us when we're under pressure and when things happen. We want God for us to show us the way. We want for him to explain to us why things are happening. We say to God, show me what you are doing. This is not what I expected. Help me to see you in this situation and help me to know that this is you. So I can understand and empathize with what Thomas might have been feeling. This was a very real human interaction, and it shows how hard it was for him to see Jesus right in front of him. But Jesus says, if you want to know God, I am the way to know God, and you do not need to wait on anyone else to show you anything else. I am the full revelation of the God of the universe. This is why he said in John 1.18, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God, as in, is in close relationship with the Father, and he has made him known. So I want to kind of provide that as foundational material before we actually jump into this I am statement. Because these touch points that Jesus reminds his disciples about are very important to fully understand the qualities that Jesus defines himself by in the I am statement in John 14, 6. So just for the purpose of reminding you, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I really believe that this I am statement is so profound in so many ways. And so what we're going to do is kind of reacquaint ourselves maybe with some of the qualities that uniquely define who Jesus is based on these three characteristics that Jesus uses as touch points for himself. The first touch point that he talks about to define himself is that Jesus provides a unique way to God. In John chapter 1, it says that he came to that which was his own, but his own did not recognize him. And part of the reason was he was criticized and ridiculed by his own people when he dealt with evil. And they even said of him that he casts out demons by demons, by Beelzebub. He was also criticized by his own people when he befriended the marginalized crooks and blatant sinners. And the one example that I thought was most striking that we'll use as sort of an example for the unique way in which Jesus dealt with people was the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. And you might remember when this woman was caught in the act of adultery, the religious people of his day brought this woman before Jesus. They threw her down on the ground and they had stones in hand ready to condemn her. And they said, what do we do with her? The law of Moses says that we're supposed to stone her to death. But Jesus' way was against their way. It went, it went against the cultural and religious norms of what they were trying to do. They thought the way to God 
was to find the sin in this woman's life, but Jesus instead found a way to be her friend. He had such a unique way. Now, when I worked at Kent State years ago, um, I was there for about six years. I worked in the student center, which is kind of the main epicenter on campus, the main student hub, shall we say. And I would see a lot of things that would kind of come through the university life because, uh, you know, you're right there in the middle of campus. And when a university has 30,000 students, you know, in its particular location, there's a lot of different things that may go on. And uh, one of the days, um, I saw some folks that were standing outside with uh, these signs in hand. And I'm going to show you some signs um, that are going to be projected up here on a screen in just a moment. And one of the first signs that I saw said this. Go ahead and show it, Tina. It said, homosexuality is a perversion of something that God created good. Go ahead and show the second sign. It speaks of a transgender warning and uses verses to um, kind of defend their stance. There are a few other signs that I saw as well. Let's go to the next scene. This uses 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 10 that kind of list off a number of different uh, violations against God's standard. And then finally, just in case anyone was wondering, um, they wanted to communicate the fact that Jesus saved people from hell which was the message they were trying to convey to those who committed these heinous actions. So when I saw this, I was rather frustrated by it. Because I thought to myself, um, while these things you know, might have an element of truth to them, um, it was frustrating for me because to me it didn't adequately represent the Jesus that I knew. It didn't adequately represent to me the Jesus that I found in the scriptures. Because I thought that it said in John chapter 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I thought he said in Luke 15, 4, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? I thought he also said in Luke 15, 8, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have found my lost coin. I thought he also said in John 5, Verse 16, let your sh light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And I also remembered what he said in John 3.17. He says, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. These were the things that I thought represented the Jesus that I knew. And so when I saw these signs... It just rubbed me the wrong way. So when Jesus talks about being the way, I truly believe that he meant that he didn't come into this world to find ways to throw stones at people. I do not believe that he died on a cross because he was quick to condemn. 
And when we do this, it's my estimation, I think, that we reduce the value of God's love to the world. I think he died on a cross because it says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This is his way, and for sure it was not an easy way, but it was God's way for everyone. So I have a few questions for you. Do you follow this way? Are you quick to throw stones, or are you quick to get to know someone's story? Do you find ways to tell others about God's laws that they are breaking, or do you find ways to show God's love to people that are needing it? And you know, I was so encouraged by uh, some other images that a friend of mine showed me that kind of contrasts what I just showed you a moment ago. Um, I had some friends that actually went to an event that uh, a lot of these people that were being condemned uh, that went there to show kind of this way that God was leading them um, to demonstrate God's love in a unique way. Go ahead and show these other images, Tina. We, sh we see an image here. These are some people. Is it there? These are some people that actually went to an event. Um, I believe it was a gay pride event in Cleveland, Ohio. And these are believers in God. These are Christians. And they wanted to make a statement to those at this particular place because of how marginalized um, and expressions of hate Christians typically give to those who come from this community. And, uh, and then um, I think there might be one other. Oh, no, there isn't. Okay, that's all right. But I show you these images because I really wanted to illustrate the way that I see Jesus treating people in John chapter 8. I see Jesus um, advocating for this woman. I see Jesus standing up for this woman when religious people wanted to throw stones at this woman. And I have to tell you, when I was a young man, uh, before I came to Christ, I, I wasn't really guilted into God's good graces. And I don't know about you, maybe you... Somebody spoke the truth to you, and they guilted you into loving God and having a relationship with God. But I would imagine somebody loved you and cared for you when you didn't care for them. I would imagine somebody probably prayed for you when you didn't even consider praying for them. And the truth is, the way God found you and me had nothing to do with our own righteous behavior, it had everything to do with his desire to chase us down. Paul said, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the way Jesus does his work. He finds us where we are and begins from there. Now, I know what you're thinking. Are we supposed to just shout grace to people and just sort of whisper repentance? I really don't think that's the way to go. In fact, at the end of this story in John chapter 8, Jesus looked at this woman and he said, where are your accusers? Did any one of them condemn you? And she says, no. And he says, neither do I. And he speaks truth to her and he says, now go and leave your life of sin. Which leads to our next touch point about Jesus, which is this. He provides a very unique truth. 
In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, it says, if you hold to my teaching, this is Jesus telling his disciples, you are really my disciples. He says, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You see, the truth is Jesus would have lied to this woman who was caught in the act of adultery if he said, go and find another man, continue in your sexual indulgence because that will make you happy. That would have been a lie. And instead, he spoke the truth. He said, now stop what you're doing because it's destroying your life. He told her the truth. He didn't sugarcoat it. He spoke truth because he cared enough to say it to her. He told her the truth about herself to set her free from herself. And he didn't want this woman to be defined by her adulterous affair. And she would have been if Jesus would not have said anything to her. And so what God wants to do when he speaks his truth is that he wants to redefine by his unique truth. The truth redefined Matthew, who was a tax collector who was despised by criminal, uh, who was a despised criminal in his day. The truth redefined the prodigal son when he came back to his father after wasting away his inheritance. The truth redefined the woman at the well after she exposed her various broken relationships with many men. The truth redefined God to a bunch of religious people who thought God could be reduced to a dead religion. The truth redefined Peter after he denied Jesus three times. And the truth redefined Paul after he violently opposed Christianity. See, the truth is when Jesus steps into a person's life, he wants to redefine it because he is the personification of truth. This is why there is only one truth and one way to God. If there were many, it would just be way too confusing. If I'm looking for truths according to humanity, I'm subject to probably six billion truths. And if I'm constantly trying to look for approval from these truths, I will be blinded from the real truth. If you've been defined by things others have done to you, you need redefined by the truth. If you've been defined by things others have said to you, you need to be redefined by the truth. If you've been defined by mistakes you have, have made, you need redefined by the truth. If you've been defined by failures you've had, you need redefined by the truth. I think this is why Jesus prayed for his followers in John 17, sanctify them in the truth. So it's not just about the unique way and just showing grace to people. The Bible says that Jesus came full of grace and truth. So God has a desire to not only give grace and give people a second, a second chance, but he also has a desire to demonstrate and to show his truth. So the last thing I'd like to um, uh, talk about, about this statement that Jesus made, was uh, the word life um, that is wrapped, that is encapsulated in his statement. He says Jesus provides, excuse me, the last point is Jesus provides a unique life that God has for everyone. Jesus was not a pretentious Messiah removed from the affairs of you and I. He didn't sit in an ivory tower offering pithy statements to people. He went out of, out of his way to offer a unique life to Zacchaeus. He went out of his way to offer a unique healing for a man who was lame. He went out of his way to offer a new life to the woman at the well. He went out of his way to offer a new life 
to his friend Lazarus, and when he was about to take his last breath, he offered eternal life to the thief on the cross. His way is unique because when people encounter his truth, they are offered a life that only he can give. The world may reject you. Your boss may fire you. Your friends may walk away from you. Your parents may have never loved you. But in God's domain, the only thing you need to know is that God offers a unique life through Jesus. I think this is why it says in John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. One of the best ways that I heard this particular verse illustrated was actually told by one of my favorite teachers of God's Word, the late Dr. Fred Craddock. Dr. Fred Craddock was a uh, professor at Emory University at the Candler School of Theology, and he tells a story about a time when he was vacationing uh, in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. One morning, they were eating breakfast at a place called Blackberry Inn. I suppose it's burned down since then, but he was there with his wife, and they had gotten rid of their kids, and they were having a nice time, and they were enjoying breakfast, and uh, the professor noticed this old man who was walking from one table to the next, and finally he came and greeted Dr. Craddock and his wife, and he said, uh, what's your name? And he said, my name is Fred Craddock, and this is my wife. What do you do for a living? He's like, oh, I teach at a seminary. Oh, you teach preachers, do you? He says, yes, I, I teach preachers. He's like, may I sit down at your table and tell you a story? He's like, oh, my gosh, I just want a break and have vacation. Um, what is this guy doing? He says, you see those mountains over there? I grew up on the other side of those mountains, and I was born to a mother that never told me who my father was. And she said that uh, uh, it was very hard for her after she had me because uh, when I was a child, when I was an infant, people would look at me and they would ask who my father was. And then when I proceeded to grow up, everywhere I go in this community, they would look at me and they would say, who's your father? Some people would even grab me by the face and they'd look at one side of my cheek and look at the other and try to imagine who my father was. I was constantly barraged with these questions. Whose child are you, son? And they could never figure out who my father was. He said, even on the schoolyard, kids knew that I didn't have a dad at home, and they would make fun of me. They would even say, hey, maybe you can go tell your dad when you get home. And they would say, oh, yeah, you don't have a father, do you? He said, the ridicule and scorn was terrible. Well, this kid turned about 12 years old, and he tells Dr. Craddock, I was going to church one day because we got a new preacher. He said, the preacher was interesting, but he scared me. And so I tried to show up late and leave early because I never wanted to interface with this guy. He's like, but on one day, I kind of was trying to make my way out of the service, and I couldn't get out. The crowd was too packed, and all of a sudden, I feel a hand on my shoulder, and I turn around, and he said, it was that preacher. And the preacher grabs my face and did what everybody else did, and he looked at both sides of my face, and he said, son, whose child are you? He's like, you know what? I think I know whose child you are. 
I see a striking resemblance. You're a child of God. And this, um, this young man who was 12 years old, he said, the preacher, the preacher said to me, he's like, go out there and don't listen to what everybody else tells you. You need to listen to what I just told you. And you need to go out and claim your inheritance. He left. This old man did. Dr. Craddock brought his waitress over to his table. And he said, ma'am, can you tell me who that old man was? She's like, oh, I thought you knew. She's like, I don't know who it is. I'm not from this part of Tennessee. We're in from Oklahoma. And she said, that's Ben Hooper. He was the twice-elected governor of the state of Tennessee. See, if you're willing to follow the way that he has for you, he will rewrite your story according to his script. Because you are a child of the king. And when I opened today, we talked about those blind men and what they felt. And every one of them were wrong about what they felt. And sometimes, I suppose, some of us might not feel like we are a child of God. At times in your life, you might feel like you are, in fact, defined by your past. At times in your life, you might feel like you are defined by family history. At times, you might feel defined by the words of judgment that have come from scoffers. But what we were reminded of today is that sometimes and when we are reminded of who Jesus is, it doesn't matter what we feel. The most important thing that matters is what he says we are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and we thank you for um, the truths that we find in it. We thank you um, for the I am statement that you made about being the way, the truth, and the life. I pray that if there's anyone in this room that needs to claim their inheritance in you, I pray that they would do so today. There's no reason to wait. You are in this place. You desire to connect with each person in this room. And I ask that you would do that just now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.